0: What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these troubled, violent times of pandemics, of rising authoritarianism, and of racial capitalism? What beauty can we find in our resistance? I'm Rev. Ann Dunlap, pronouns she, her, hers. I'm a United Church of Christ minister, and I'm the faith organizing coordinator for showing up for racial justice, or SURGE. I live in the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians. White Christians turning towards other white Christians to talk about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, and also we believe we have a responsibility to tell a new story about Christianity for white Christian folks, because our lives, all our lives, depend on it. And we do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. The word is resistance. Well, here we are again, friends, deep into this series on Romans, with today's episode being the culmination of the argument Paul has been making, well, all along, but especially has been crescendoing and building in chapters 9 and 10 to get us today to chapter 11, all of which, in my opinion, is really just the launching place for the actual culmination, which is chapter 12, but that is the next two weeks' episodes. For this week, the lectionary editors give us a little slice off the front and back of chapter 11, 11, uh, 1 and 2a, and then 29... to 32, which, to be honest, don't really make much sense in isolation out of their context and in some ways can be misleading as to Paul's whole point. So I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I am going to add a little bit back in for now just to kind of flesh things out a little more for us. But if you want to pause here and go read the whole chapter, I will be here when you get back. And also, as we get going, I want to remind us where we ended up last time. And so, first of all, I'm just going to quote Reverend uh, Liz Carney's powerful words from last week's episode that beautifully sum up Paul's pacing argument in chapter 10. And then launch us right into chapter 11 from there. So this is uh, Reverend Liz's chapter 10 summary. The announcement, she says, is not your God is going to to be in charge sometime soon. No, Paul is quoting a foregone conclusion that God has already won. Your God reigns. Caesar doesn't reign, even as you see the propaganda he has hammered into the silver cups of his opulent banquet table. The lies and slander of Rome do not reign, even as Rome tells you, Jewish siblings, that you are getting what you deserve and that the best you can hope for is begging Rome for the scraps of justice from the table. Even as Rome tells you, Gentile believers, that you can get just a little bit more ahead if you'll punch down towards your Jewish comrades to win points with the Roman authorities. No, beloveds, your God reigns. I ask then, has God rejected God's people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected God's people whom God knew since the beginning. If the root is holy, then the branches also are holy. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember that it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You'll say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were bent and broken off because of their lack of faith but you stand only through faith so do not become proud but stand in awe for if god didn't spare the natural branches perhaps god will not spare you note then the kindness and the decisiveness of god decisive towards those who have fallen but god's kindness towards you provided you continue in god's kindness otherwise you also will be cut off and even though some of Israel if they do not persist in lack of faith will be grafted in for God has the power to graft them in again for if you have been cut from what by what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree. So that you may not claim to be wiser than you are, my siblings, I want you to understand this mystery. A callousing has come upon part of Israel until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once stubborn to God, but have now received mercy because of their stubbornness, so they have now been stubborn in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has shut everyone up in stubbornness, so that God may be merciful to all. June, the village we live in cut down a tree in our front yard. We had a feeling it was coming. The tree belonged to the village being planted in that grass strip between the street and the sidewalk, a single tree in front of every house, all down the block. Cops had come and nailed a sign to the tree and to neighbor's trees on either side of us, prohibiting parking there due to a police order. The signs had appeared before, several months ago, and when they didn't come down for several days I called up and asked about it and was told the village would be coming around to do some trimming and maybe cut down some trees on our block. But they didn't then, and the signs came down. But then in June, there they were again. The signs went up really early and then workers came and parked their big trucks and machinery right in front of our house and we knew something was up. And then they told us they were cutting down our tree. So we went out and said thank you and goodbye to the tree. A glorious tall Norwegian silver maple that had provided so much shade for our yard. Shelter for squirrels and birdies we watched from the window. So many shades of green and spring that we loved watching as the leaves unfurled. We laid hands on the trunk and apologized to the tree that this was how their end had to come and told them we were so grateful for their beauty, for the physical and spiritual protection they offered our home. We cried a little. The workers were really kind. They gave us our space for our goodbye and seemed to understand our grief. And it made sense In a capitalist kind of logic, why the tree had to come down, our neighbor's trees were hollow in the middle with rot and could fall over at any time. Our tree had damaged and thus dead branches on one side. Trimming them off, the worker said, would have so unbalanced the tree it would have just tipped over. Nobody wants anybody to get hurt, obviously, or a car or roof crushed. And I'm also sure nobody's insurance company, especially the village's insurance company, wants to get sued for liability. A capitalist kind of logic. So down the trees came, four gorgeous, huge trees. It took the workers less than an hour and a half to completely cut down our tree. The center wood of the trunk was still strong and intact. I still get a little choked up thinking about it because it felt like somebody chainsawed my heart. The worker said the tree had reached the end of its lifespan, 50 years or so. But I've wondered since if the tree had been in community with other trees, with other plants besides the suburban lawn we let grow a bit wild with dandelions, Would it have reached the end of its life so soon? Would it have been protected from the winds and elements that damaged its branches? Would the tree have lengthened the reach of its life by eventually, someday, slowly beginning to rot, giving its body for shelter and food for animals, insects, mushrooms, lichen, moss, until eventually, someday, slowly, it became part of a forest floor ...rich soil to generate seeds of new life. That's not capitalism's logic, though. The village cut the tree down to a stump and ground every limb and branch to shreds. Because the village thought it knew the outcome. Because the village thought the tree belonged to them. But it didn't. The tree belonged... To God. What Paul is saying in Romans 11 is that the Gentiles are making the same mistake. They think the tree belongs to them. They see what Paul calls a hardening, as the NRSV translation says, which is actually a callous in Greek. And they see the people of Israel's defeat by Rome, bent and broken branches, and they think that is the end of Israel's story. They think that God has rejected Israel in favor of the Gentiles, and that is the end of that. This must be, as Neil Eliot points out, the climax of history with Gentiles as a whole new tree, root and branches all. It makes sense in an imperialist kind of logic that viewed the defeated as deserving of defeat, with the empire taking over everything it wins. The Gentile Romans think they have supplanted the Jews as God's people, just like Rome has supplanted Judea through imperial colonization. But Paul says, absolutely not. Or in biblical language, by no means. Paul says it twice in this chapter, by no means, by no means. And he goes on to reiterate throughout this chapter that God has not rejected God's people, that those who stumble did not do so as to fall, which means it's a temporary situation. You'll remember that lit signpost from two weeks ago about this because Paul was already on this stumbling bit in chapter 9. Paul goes on that the gifts and the call of God to Israel are irrevocable and that all Israel will be saved. All. As in all. And like in chapter 9, the point about the stumbling and the hardening is to actually get to Paul's real point, which is telling the Gentiles to quit their boasting and pride and thinking they've taken over as the root of God's tree. The root which Paul is clear means Israel, God's people and their lineage and their story, that root is just fine. Holy even. The root, the branches, even bent and broken. Good and holy. Even the quote-unquote hardening, as the NRSV has it, the callous, has its part to play in God's mystery movement towards mercy for all. And again, we're not talking about the bullshit, quote-unquote, mercy of the emperors that only showed off their own imperial dominance, but God's mercy that leads to justice, which is to say the conditions of thriving for everyone. Even the callous has its part to play. Exists because of trauma. A callus exists because of a wound. Maybe you have a callus on your palms from good hard labor, or on your feet from where a shoe is rubbed wrong, or on your fingertips from playing guitar strings. What are those calluses doing? They're offering protection, right? What a brilliant adaptation of our skin, that in a place that gets rubbed raw, the skin will make a callus, so we don't have bleeding blisters over and over again, causing us pain and opening us up to infection. Trees have calluses too. Where a tree has been wounded, and this is the language the tree specialist I read use, tree wounds, when a tree has been wounded, They grow a callus around that wound, special strengthened tissue that grows around the edges of the wound towards the center to protect this tender place on the tree and seal it off from pathogens entering and causing decay. The callus tissue even has chemical properties that continue to fight off pathogens, both limiting the damage and protecting the tree from any more damage. When Paul talks about a hardening that has come on some, not all, I feel like we have to keep saying some, not all, to counteract nearly 2,000 years of Christians trying to make it all. He talks about this hardening twice in chapter 11, and both times it is a limited amount of people. When Paul says a hardening has come on some, the word in Greek is actually callous. The NRSV does us a disservice here because we hear hardening and probably immediately think of Pharaoh. In fact in chapter 10 Paul does reference Pharaoh and his hardened heart but it's a completely different word. I was one of those people who read hardening and thought oh Paul is trying to make a connection between Pharaoh's hard heart and the sum giving allegiance or assimilating to the current Pharaoh, a.k.a. Rome, which is not exactly wrong, as we've seen in this series. Definitely, there are some of Paul's people who turn to Rome, thinking Rome would save them instead of God. And Paul knows it. But I was wrong. Pharaoh's hard heart is not the word Paul uses here. Paul uses a word directly tied to the protection of wounds caused by the bending and breaking of branches on a tree. The kind of protective process that actually allows for grafting something new into the quite healthy and rich and holy original. This distinction between hardening as Pharaoh's heart and hardening as a protective callus is really important. Because what happens to Pharaoh? As the song says, Oh, Mary, don't you weep. Oh, Martha, don't you mourn. Pharaoh got drowned in the Red Sea. Pharaoh is destroyed. Babylon is destroyed. Paul is saying Rome's destruction is already in process. Destruction is what happens to hard imperial hearts. But according to Paul, right here in his own words, that's not what happens to the tree's calluses. Calluses are part of the tree. They are, imp- they are playing an important protective role while God uses this time to get more Gentiles on board with the anti-imperial, justice-means-collective-thriving, faithfulness-to-God-not-Rome mystery movement because in Paul's reading of the prophets, the fullness of God's time is all Israel together with the nations worshiping the one God together. Which I think is Paul's take on the wisdom of the black feminist writers of the Combahee River Collective statement who said, If black women were free, it would mean that everyone else would have to be free since our freedom would necessitate the destruction of all systems of oppression. For Paul, and indeed for a lot of the biblical witness, we could read that as if the people of Israel were free, it would mean that everyone else would have to be free since our freedom would necessitate the destruction of these imperial ways that keep crushing us and pulling us away from each other. Which is to say, the nations would stop trying to worship empire and would participate in building structures of collective thriving instead. My mind is kind of boggling at how I'm seeing Paul understanding the calluses on the tree. The holy root the holy branches, all of it holy. There's no reason to think it's God who is breaking and bending the branches. The text doesn't say that. Verse 21 says God doesn't spare the branches, but I think that can just as easily mean God is using this time of bending and callousing to achieve God's ends, which even Paul admits is a mystery, rather than God actually breaking off branches God's self as some kind of punishment or, you know, destruction like Pharaoh. And we can have a good conversation about why God wouldn't just stop all this imperial bullshit once and for all without more people needing to bend and break, which, you know, is a question for the ages. But in the meantime, what we do know is that Rome is wounding the beautiful tree of life that is the people of Israel. Paul's people. Jesus's people. There are Roman armies marching through the land, literally bending and breaking tree branches, leaving behind collective wounds and trauma in their violating and colonizing wake. Read this way, I can see Paul understanding these calluses, this protective healing tissue as a visible sign of the impact of that trauma. A sign of the fracturing that happens in communities impacted by that kind of trauma. A recognition of the choices that traumatized people make to assimilate, to fight back, to shrink and be quiet, fight, flight, freeze, fawn, all these different responses, all these calluses that show where the wounds are. I just want to yell at the translators who call trauma responses unbelief and disobedience. Language which I changed up in what I read earlier earlier, because it's just so harsh a choice when what we're talking about is trauma, when what Paul is talking about is trauma. We don't have to agree with the kinds of choices some people make in response to trauma. Paul clearly doesn't. But we do need to have compassion for the reasons behind those choices. The ways trauma, especially generational trauma driven by political persecution and repression such as is the case of Paul's people. The ways trauma bends and breaks people and communities. That's what I see happening here when Paul talks about calluses and the wholeness of the tree and the bending and breaking of branches. Paul is understanding calluses as the impact of wounding of trauma of Rome crashing through vineyards and orchards and fields and peoples. And so what Paul does is actually a deeply pastoral move motivated by his deep love for his people. Because in this context, all Israel will be saved means that God's care extends to all of them. That God holds all of them together in God's vision of deliverance. That God is acting to save all of them. Root, branch, callous, grafts, all. And it doesn't have anything to do with the groups that are the calluses accepting Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior or in any other way. Paul doesn't ever say that. The callous doesn't have to do anything at all. The whole people of Israel are saved from Rome because God loves them and because God has promised to, and God will keep God's promise to take away their sins. Which we remember, Pam Eisenbaum says, is about putting the world right. Not about individual error, but about liberating the people from these structures that bend and break and wound and traumatize and instead building structures for collective thriving. And I'm sure it's confusing to the Gentiles who were formed in imperial flesh, as Brigitte said a few weeks ago, formed to think that to be wounded is to be defeated is to be cut down to a stump and be replaced by the worthy victor. I'm sure it's confusing to the Gentiles that not only are the loser that not only are the losers in Rome's imperial theology, which is to say the Jewish people as a whole, considered the rich root and central to God's vision of a whole and just world, but also so are the some of the Jewish people who aren't practicing faithfulness like the Gentiles have been taught to practice faithfulness, as in trusting in God and not in Rome, a sum within the sum who may even be acting like enemies. All of them, all will be saved. It may even be confusing to us, because this Roman imperial theology that cuts the losers to a stump to be replaced by the winners is what got embedded in dominant Christianity. It's Roman imperial theology just with a cross on the battle flag instead. Salvation became an individualized either-or binary where the saved are considered some kind of winner and the disobedient are just lost, worthy of defeat by the winners. But that is not what Paul says. Paul says all. In the grand mystery of God's liberative work, God will use all things for good, for liberation, and so all Israel will be saved. And it's a really messy all, actually. A rich root, strong limbs, bent and broken branches, calluses, random wild branches grafted in. There's actually no way to make a binary out of this. Though, wow, Christians sure have tried. Because binaries is not what God cares about. God cares about the whole. The whole, messy, sprawling tree, liberated and safe from being trampled by Caesar's armies. And that's not just Paul making that up. That divine care is deeply attested in Paul's own Jewish tradition. Paul references Isaiah a lot in these chapters, 9-11, through so Isaiah, through the prophet's voice, tells the story of the people of Israel being conquered by Babylon, Jerusalem being destroyed and the people left with nothing, and Israel's royal household being carried off into exile. And also at the same time, Isaiah critiques the royal household for unjust leadership, like building their own wealth off the backs of the poor or for cozying up to Babylon in hopes Israel won't get crushed. Isaiah sees Babylon's actions as a temporary punishment of the unjust leaders and also at the same time, Babylon's actions are a threat to God's whole people that will result in Babylon's ultimate destruction, both at the same time and God always at work To get the whole people free. And when Babylon falls, which it does, the exiles who return to Jerusalem are the families of those same unjust leaders God was mad at. God's vision of salvation from Babylon and restoration includes that same group getting to go home again. And what we also know is that while in exile, folks were marrying Babylonians having kids, and they came back to Jerusalem too. And also, some folks liked it just fine in Babylon and they stayed. It's an ongoing tension which Paul recognizes in all this talk of trees and branches. Some people do choose empire. But that doesn't stop God from working to assure empire's fall. That's the decisive part of God's promise. In the NRSV, they use the word severity, which yeah, God has pretty harsh words for empires all throughout the Bible. That's nothing new. So there's no reason to think severity means God actually is wrathful with humanity as a whole for being individually fallen and that wrath can only be appeased by human sacrifice and punishing obedience. That's what we're taught Paul means, but again That's the imperial logic. Instead, what we can see Paul describing here is God in their divine orchard. God tending to those calluses, which mostly you just leave calluses alone to do their job. God shoring up the bent limbs, God gathering up broken branches, even the wild Gentile branch, which where did that branch come from? How is it off by itself? Did Rome actually break it too? Did the Gentiles see the wounding of Paul's people? Like maybe they saw an uprising, get crushed by Roman police, or maybe they saw innocent people be executed? And like maybe then they noticed their own wounding? Maybe their own land taken over for colonizer gain. Maybe they were hungry themselves while Nero kept throwing himself lavish banquets. Maybe they say they saw all this wounding together and realized, oh, we are all in this together. We want to be part of a world where this kind of wounding doesn't exist. And they tore themselves off the empire and offered themselves up to God for grafting. And so here God is, grafting the whole world back together in ways that defy imperial logic, including which, mystery of mysteries, it's the calluses that hold the grafts in place until everything is healed and growing together. Which I think means that God understands that empires traumatize us, all of us, Gentiles too, And so God holds all of us in that tender care with a vision that gets all of us free. Even when we don't always agree with the choices we make out of that trauma. I want you to understand this mystery, Paul says. And it may still feel like a mystery to us how this all happens, how God holds all of it, all of us in the mess and in the healing, challenging the limits of our imaginations shaped in imperial flesh. I want you to understand this mystery. All Israel will be saved. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, Paul says. How unsearchable are their judgments, and how inscrutable their ways! For who has known the mind of God? Or who has been God's counselor? Or who has given a gift to God to receive a gift in return? For from God and through God and to God are all things. Not the empire, but God. To God be the glory forever. Amen. are so many implications for reading Romans 11 in this way. Paul has his own implications, which are coming up in the great therefore that starts chapter 12. For me, I want to keep thinking about how we understand collective trauma and the ways we criminalize it, punish it, call it disorder and deserved poverty and things like that. I want to think about transformative justice and how no one is disposable and how God, including who we think are our enemies kinds of kind of blows our minds. I want to keep thinking about that Gentile branch out there and what that's all about. And Like, what are you left thinking about? So here's my call to action for you today. We can't stress enough how what Paul is addressing is a collective. The response is a collective. The people are being saved as a collective. And we've been noticing as a podcast crew how getting to a more liberating reading of Paul actually is requiring collective work. Text threads shouting all means all in all caps and emails of encouragement and screenshots of book excerpts and head-shaking, oh my God, why did we do this? Zoom calls and drafts sent with, like, please help. Does this make any sense at all? That's not how we usually do these episodes. It's usually been each one of us on our own. But hello, getting free is collective work. Getting free from harmful interpretations of Romans is collective work. So in that spirit, I invite you to share one of these episodes with your collective, your branches you hang out with, if you will, and talk about what comes up for you. What are the implications your group notices? What are new things you can practice together to embody being part of God's tree? Hint, Paul has ideas about that coming up. And if you want to let us know what you're thinking about, you can fill out our listener survey on the podcast page at surge.org, we would really like to know how all this is landing with you. Beloveds, thanks as always for joining us from wherever you are on this good earth. You can find out more about surge at surge.org, S-U-R-J dot and you can find transcripts of each episode there, which include references, resources, and action links. We'll be back next week with a resistance word from Brigida Vieira as we continue on in our Wrestling with Romans series. Brigida gets the first half of Chapter 12, my favorite part of the whole letter. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to it. And of course, a huge thanks to our sound editor um, this week. Uh, As always, Claire Hitchens, just the deepest gratitude to you. Again, for your flexibilities, we work through all of these layers. So thank you. Blessings to you and all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Anne Dunlap.